I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. The last couple of Sundays we've been looking at Paul's rebuke of the Judaizers and his affirmation of justification by grace through faith. Justification that comes by having the righteousness of Christ imputed or credited to believers through faith, received by faith. And this, in this matter of justification, the Christian's sole boast, sole hope is Jesus Christ. All other works, all other efforts are counted as lost. They're garbage compared to this. That's what Paul has been saying. All other works are counted as lost when it comes to the grounds of our salvation. That is solely Christ and his work Performed and his righteousness credited to our account, our sins washed clean. And when we talk about this justification that comes as a free gift of God's grace to those who believe, not because of works at all, works contributing zero to that, there is often an objection, or at the very least, a question that arises. Well, does this then mean that you're saying that we just go on sinning? We can just sin, live however we want, because we're just going to go to heaven in the end. Is that what this is saying? Of course, Paul himself faced this objection throughout his life and dealt with it very directly in some places, such as Romans chapter 6, where he deals with that explicitly. He knows that question's coming because of the gospel of grace that he preaches. And so he answered that objection very forthrightly in Romans 6. Well, here in Philippians, the objection is also answered, but in a different way. As Paul goes on in verse 10, so we've covered up through to verse 9, and as he goes on in verse 10 and then following to talk about his own life spent in pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus more and becoming like him as Paul looks ahead to the final resurrection from the dead that comes at the end upon the return of Christ. And as he's talking about his own pursuit of this, he also Uh, explicitly states in verse 17, he calls us to join in imitating him in this. So he's not just talking about himself and his own life, but he's putting this forth as an example for us. We should imitate his example. The word sanctification is not used here in these verses, but the doctrine and the concept most certainly is here. God's people, justified by his grace, grow in holiness, grow in Christ's likeness. And this culminates ultimately at, in, the, in glorification at the return of Christ. And this desire, this pursuit of Christ's likeness was a constant thing in Paul's life, a constant pursuit. We might even say that it was the singular aim and pursuit of Paul's life. He's going to indicate that even here in our text. As Paul sought to live the entirety of his life to the glory of his God and Savior. And this is what Paul calls Christians. This is what Paul calls you if you're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he calls you to imitate. Now when we talk about this, when we talk about loving Christ and obeying him and pursuing holiness and and righteousness, seeking to be like Christ, it's crucial here that we keep, keep the order that Paul has for us in mind. 
Because it's not an accidental order. As we've looked at in verses 2 through 9, justification by grace through faith alone in Christ Jesus, that comes first. And this rules out putting any confidence in our flesh, in our efforts, in our works, in our justification. That when anyone passes the test, so to speak, when we stand before God in judgment, if we are to survive that moment and not succumb to his fiery wrath, it'll solely be because of Christ Jesus, because we are trusting in him, believing in him, not because of our works. But that's the grounds of our salvation is what Christ has done. And so that is received by grace through faith. And then, for such people, comes the pursuit of holiness, which is seeking to better know and be like the Savior who has already purchased you. So if and when you fail to measure up to the single-minded pursuit of Christ's likeness, you needn't become depressed about it, completely discouraged about it, or even doubting of your salvation. If your hope and your boast is truly in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's, with that in mind, we're going to read. We're just going to read starting in verse 8 through to verse 16. And then we're going to jump into verses 10 to 16 we're going to cover in the sermon. So Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 8. The word of the Lord. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will, will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Three points to our outline as we work through verses 10 to 16. The first thing I want to look at is the pathway and end goal of sanctification. The pathway and the end goal of sanctification. This is verses 10 and 11. Just before we get to that, just if we back up a bit in the middle of verse 8, Paul says, for his sake, that's for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And then he goes on to give three purposes for rejecting this self-righteousness. He says first, in order that I may gain Christ, so that's one, and in order that I may be found in him, that's the second. Of course, these are all very closely tied and related. And then in verse 9, it speaks of this imputed, this credited righteousness for those who are in Christ. And then comes this third purpose 
of rejecting any hope, any confidence in himself. He says in verse 10, that I may know him and know the power of his resurrection and know the fellowship of his sufferings, which the ESV translates, that I may share his sufferings. And he adds, becoming like him in his death. So Paul is eager to know Christ and his power and become like him even through suffering. And so the emphasis shifts in our text in verse 10 toward this pursuit of knowing Christ further, towards sanctification. Of course, this begins with rejecting self-righteousness altogether, for instead holding fast to the righteousness of God that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what we've seen in in the previous verses, 2-9. to But knowing Christ then is something that continues, that we grow in throughout the believer's days. And when Paul speaks of knowing Christ here, he is speaking of an experiential knowledge of the Lord Jesus. He's not simply talking about a head knowledge, some facts about Christ that we've committed to memory. Of course, that's part of it. That's good and right. But he's speaking of trusting in Christ and then experiencing new life in him. Now, whenever we use the word experiential, we might get a little bit nervous or a little bit uncomfortable about that because of the many abuses of spiritual experience. Uh, Evangelical churches are just obsessed with spiritual experiences, and it's tremendously unhelpful, a lot of it. But if understood correctly, it's not a bad word, this word experiential. The reality is Christianity is not just a dead orthodoxy. It is not simply a a matter of, of a few facts or intellectualism. It's not just an intellectual pursuit. It is that, but it is more than that. As James said, faith without deeds is dead. It's a dead faith. It's not a saving faith. True saving faith that is resting in Christ, that is trusting in his provisions for your justification, for your salvation, will produce good works. And here this is all framed with this word knowing, knowing Christ. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So to know Christ is really the main concept, and the phrases that follow in verse 10 are explaining what it means, what it looks like to know Christ, what it is that Paul's talking about here. So first, to know Christ is to know the power of his resurrection, he says. Of course, we know Christ was raised from the dead after he died, made satisfaction for sins. He was raised for our justification. But this is not just talking about knowing about Christ's resurrection. Throughout the scriptures in a number of places, Christ's resurrection and his resurrection power are tied closely to sanctification. So, for example, Romans 6 verse 4 says, We were buried therefore with him, with Christ, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism pictures our death to sin and our rising to new life in Christ Jesus. We are raised from spiritual death, given spiritual life, that we might then walk in newness of life. 
It is a resurrection, spiritual resurrection. And so to know Christ is therefore to walk in that newness of life. It is to experientially know something of the power of his resurrection as we put off sin and and grow in holiness. It's the fruit-bearing life of a Christian. And so the, the path of sanctification involves this walking in newness of life, knowing the power of his resurrection, living it, experiencing something of it. And he continues, so he says that I may know him and know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, which I think is a better translation. But the ESV says here that and and that I may share his sufferings, which is really what the meaning of knowing the fellowship of Christ's sufferings is, as he clarifies in the very next phrase, becoming like him in his death. To to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings is to suffer for Christ's sake. It is a communion with Christ in his sufferings as we suffer for him. This is to know something of Christ's sufferings by experiencing suffering for his sake. If you think of, again, uh, Acts chapter 9 when the uh, soon-to-be apostle... Paul was converted. Uh, He had been persecuting the church of Christ. We talked about that in previous weeks. He talks about that earlier in chapter 3 here, verse 6. And yet when the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, appears to him and there's the bright light, you recall what he says to Saul. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me, he says. Well, of course, Christ was already risen and ascended at this point. But as as Saul was going around and persecuting the church, Christ so identifies with his people that he says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? This This is our fellowship that believers have with Christ. And as we suffer, Paul says elsewhere, he's filling he's filling up the afflictions of Christ, that the enemies of Christ can't get at the Lord Jesus because he's risen and raised and ascended to the father's right hand. But this the same sort of vitriol that was spewed at the Lord Jesus Christ is then taken out on his people the world over. And as that happens, we are sharing in Christ's sufferings. This is why he says, to be, it's be, he clarifies his meaning of sharing in suffering. It's not just sharing in the benefits of Christ's suffering, which is, of course, true for believers. But he says it's becoming like him in his death. This would, of course, this involves our, our self-denial, which is a regular part of the Christian life, considering others' interests ahead of our own. But Paul most certainly has suffering for the sake of Christ in view here. The scriptures are clear that our pathway to the heavenly kingdom, as those who are justified by God's grace through faith in Christ alone, our pathway nevertheless As we go through this life and we look ahead to that heavenly kingdom, our future inheritance, our pathway will take us through various trials and tribulations. Paul himself taught that to people on his missionary journey throughout Acts. Through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Various trials and tribulations, some measure of persecution, 
is to be expected. As followers of Christ, we, we will receive reproach for the name of Christ. If they've hated him, how much more would they hate and despise us? And while that's an unpleasant thought often to think of, it is something that unquestionably we, we have to accept as the Lord's people. It's, it's stated in no uncertain terms, in fact, in the Bible. If anyone desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, Paul told Timothy, you will be persecuted. To some extent, it will come. We know that God uses various types of suffering to sanctify his people. And so let us be reminded of this, that as we go through these tribulations and trials, as we suffer for the name of Christ, this is to know Christ, to have a fellowship with him in his sufferings. And so this is not something that we need to rant and rail about or and it vex in our souls about as we consider it, as we see it happening, as we see suffering come to brothers and sisters. It is wrong. It is wrong when the wicked do this to the Lord's people. It is painful to endure it when it happens to you. But let us squeeze comfort from this passage that this is part of the pathway we must walk through this life. And it is part of how we come to know the Lord Jesus all the more is to suffer for his sake. We go to Christ outside the camp and we share in his reproach. And Paul adds here that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. This phrase, there's some question as to the best way to translate the first part of that verse. English Standard Version says that by any means possible. While others say something like, if somehow I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. What this appears to be is Paul in humility, acknowledging that whatever the pathway to the eschatological end times resurrection from the dead, he is content to walk it. He longs to know Christ's power in him, to live unto Christ, and whatever suffering comes along the way, he will go through it. If only at the end of all of that is the final resurrection, in which he will know perfect holiness and forever be with his Lord. Whatever it takes for that day to come, whatever he's got to endure, he's glad to do it. He's prepared to do it. And the end goal of all this, the end goal of sanctification, is clear. Attaining the eschatological resurrection from the dead. So this process of sanctification is a process that involves the spiritual resurrection to walk in newness of life, in which we are fighting sin and we are growing over time in victory over our sin. And I'll just add, uh, that's not an instant victory in which we are already perfect. We will see Paul himself declare that in a moment, but there is this walking in newness of life. This involves sharing in Christ's Christ's suffering, and it all leads to and has as its end the final physical and bodily resurrection to eternal life. This is the time, of course, when Christ will return and the dead in Christ will rise imperishable. Holiness will be brought to completion in both body and spirit. 
We will dwell forever with the Lord Jesus and all of his saints in the new heavens and new earth. Romans 6.22 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We, of course, receive eternal life upon faith in Jesus Christ. We are promised eternal life, but we will enter into that fully at the last day. That is the end of all this. That is where all of this is headed. And so I would encourage you to renew your mind here in these truths, to look again to that end, to see the goodness and and the beauty of being like Christ. And to see the, the truth that the scriptures are telling us that to share in Christ's sufferings is to know him and to be unashamed of that whether it's you yourself going through those trials and suffering for the sake of Christ, or whether it's somebody else you know of, to stand with them and not to be embarrassed because they dared to speak the truth of Christ or stand for the truth of Christ. Again, this is to to grow in our knowledge of Christ, the Lord who has bought us to fellowship in his sufferings. So as Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's the path and the end goal of sanctification. Secondly, the pursuit of sanctification. We have the pursuit of sanctification in verses 12 through 14. So throughout the book of Philippians, Paul speaks of God's sovereignty in the matter of saving and sanctifying his people, completing the work that he begins in believers. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 6, a great verse to that end. And this truth of God's sovereignty in these things is a tremendous comfort. A tremendous comfort at all times, particularly perhaps if we're struggling and feeling weak and downtrodden. We're beginning to even doubt ourselves as we struggle to see advance in the faith. Of course, Paul not only speaks of God's sovereignty in this matter, but also speaks of human responsibility, speaks of human effort in pursuing this end goal. And we saw, of course, these two truths wedded together back in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I won't read that again, but you can flip back there and remind yourself of that. And he returns here again to to the pursuit of sanctification, the pursuit of holiness. And again, this comes after, of course, laying out the justification by grace through faith. So again, keeping that order in mind. Verse 12, he says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul is very clear that he has not yet arrived. He has not yet reached the final resurrection nor perfection. It seems evident in verses 12 and 13 that Paul is uh, addressing some false teachers, or at least that there were some, there were some errors in all of this uh, teaching that was going on in the Philippian church. There was some sort of perfectionism, it would seem, being taught, probably a sense of, 
having arrived at the end goal. Some believers saying this, somebody teaching this. Maybe not thinking of it as a moral perfection, but as a spiritual perfection. A teaching that probably resulted in kind of a laziness of sorts when it comes to the pursuit of of Christ-likeness. A drawing away from that pursuit, most certainly. We don't know exactly what Paul was combating, whether uh, this is the same group that he's already addressed here that he called the dogs, these mutilators of the flesh, the Judaizers that he's addressed uh, beginning in verse 2. Maybe it's another group. Some, maybe it's an early form of Gnosticism that was around, uh, that Paul dealt with, this sort of spiritual perfectionism, uh, that this body is bad and the spirit is good and we've reached a perfection and so what we do with the body doesn't really matter and so people carry on and sin with their physical bodies. Perhaps it's one of those things. But we don't need a perfect reconstruction of what exactly Paul was addressing in order to benefit here from what he says. Paul is looking ahead here to the last day, to the completion of salvation, to what he calls perfection. And he's not yet attained it, he's not yet reached it, but he presses on, he says, to make that my own. Now the word press on in Greek is the same word that is translated back in verse 6 as persecutor of the church. This word means to hasten, to run after, to drive away. And so it can be used negatively. If you're driving somebody away or running after someone negatively, that's translated to persecute. But it can also be translated positively. And so I think Paul intentionally is using this word multiple times here to say that all that zealous energy that he had formerly poured into persecuting the church of Christ, Paul is now pouring into the pursuit of Christ, of knowing Christ, and of reaching the end goal for which Christ has purchased Paul. And he does all of this, he says here, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So again, the reason that Paul does this is that he's purchased by Christ. He belongs to Christ by grace, and thus he serves at Christ's pleasure. He longs to know his ransomer and to be more like him. And he knows that's the ultimate end here that he's headed to. And so in the meantime, I want to I experience as much of that as possible and live in light of that day and run towards that day. Again, this orders things rightly. It is not a pursuit of perfection so that he might be accepted by Christ, but it is the pursuit of perfection because he already belongs to Christ. This is a, a, a crucial difference. Now, some translations translate that last part of the verse a little bit differently because it's, it's hard to know the best way to translate it. And, and it could legitimately be either way. Uh, but but he, the New American Standard Bible says, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So instead of Christ making us his own being the cause of pursuing sanctification, that translation, the New American Standard, translate, uh, that translation stresses that Christ made us his own for the purpose of, of bringing us to completed perfection, namely the resurrection. And so what Paul's saying, in effect, is if that's where 
If that's why Christ has purchased me, if that's why he has made me his own, if that's where all of this is heading, then I I will pursue that. Christ's purpose for me and, and, and my purpose are one. Either way, however the best way to translate, whichever translation is better, those trusting in Christ, it's clear, have been apprehended by Christ and as a result, pursue holiness the perfection of which is where all of this is indeed leading to on the last day. So that's verse 12. Then into verse 13, we have in many ways a parallel to verse 12, saying basically the, the same thing, but in a little bit different way. Paul says in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. So here, here's where we see that single-mindedness emerge. Life for Paul is lived through this ultimate filter. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on, there's that word again, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul does not spend too much time overanalyzing all of his past successes or failures Forgetting what lies behind, he says. Rather, he is like a runner. He is running a race. He is straining forward to that, that which lies ahead, to the finish line. The end goal, which he states here as the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Again, that eschatological goal. This final resurrection from the dead when all of the striving will be done and the full inheritance will be entered into. This upward call is something that God has called believers to in his sovereignty. And Paul, again, is seeking to live in light of that day. Straining forward toward it. There's so much comfort rightly to be taken in God's sovereignty to save and to keep his own. And at the same time, this is truth that is not designed in any way to teach us that we just continue in sin or just live a lazy life or something like that. But rather, it teaches us, it lays before us the very purpose and end goal of our lives that God is bringing us toward, perfection in Christ Jesus. And so we are to then join in this, to 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 pursue that with everything we have, to live for that day, to strain forward for that, to strive for it, to struggle to put off sin and to put on righteousness. For this is, to, this is what we are called to. And so I would encourage you, again, engage in this battle. Do not use your justification by grace as a cover-up for sin, as a cover-up for laziness. Perish any thought of that. But likewise, do not let the call to pursue sanctification crush you when you fail to measure up. Again, forgetting what lies behind, Paul says he strives and presses on. That would include the successes Paul has had. And we're warned about past success. If you think that you are standing firm, be careful lest you fall, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 
Just because we had a great day yesterday, we, we forget what lies behind, we strain forward, we continue to be diligent and watchful. But likewise, our, our past sins, our failures, our sins of yesterday or this morning, today, we confess those things. We know it's sinful. And we put that aside because Christ has died for those sins and we continue to plow forward. The Lord is bringing you to perfection if you believe in Christ Jesus. So pursue that today. Let this teaching, this scripture, shine in and push out those other desires that would compete with your desire for Christ's likeness. We have opportunities every day to seek the Lord, to seek to honor Him in whatever comes our way, whatever life brings, whatever God in His sovereignty brings to us, whatever we face in our workplaces, in our homes, leading our families, interacting with our friends, with one another in the church, our neighbors. Every day we have opportunity to seek to bring honor to our Lord. Thirdly, the mature mindset of sanctification. The mature mindset of sanctification. So this is verses 15 and 16. Let's read verse 15. Paul writes, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. If you would grow in sanctification, you need to think this way, the way that Paul, what Paul is explaining here. That is, you need to believe what God says in his word about this matter first. To renew your mind in these truths. If you're relying on Christ Jesus, if he is your hope of glory, your hope of salvation, then you have a firm and secure hope in him. God is indeed conforming you into the image of his son and says he will complete the work that he has begun in you. Back in chapter 1 and verse 6. That will conclude ultimately on the last day, the final resurrection. And in the meantime, this is a reminder here, it is good to continue to grow in knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. To bear fruit, to know the power of his resurrection. To fight sin, to deny yourself, to suffer for righteousness sake. To press on toward the final end, since Christ has indeed made you his own. This is the good life. It is good to know the Lord Jesus. To... If, when you, if you feel the tug on your heart of other things that would seek to supplant this as your ultimate goal and ultimate desires, the things that you really, really would want in life, seek to put that off and to have your mind renewed here about what is of ultimate importance and greatness and value. We need this reminder because we get consumed by so much. That's just life. It's reality. We get consumed with other matters. 
And often they're, they're weighty matters. They're significant matters. They're difficulties. They're important things. But regardless of what comes in this life, regardless of circumstances, this truth remains. He says, let those of us who are mature think in this way. And Paul expresses a confidence here that those who've erred in this regard will be corrected by God himself, that he will reveal that to you. That God will instruct these brothers and sisters in the true way, convince them of the truth. And then Paul adds in verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now throughout this text, the idea of attaining is forward-looking, the resurrection of the dead, uh, the perfection that is to be ours at that time. Additionally, having just told us that maturity means thinking about these things the way that Paul has laid this out, it seems that he is here calling us to hold fast to the truths that he has laid out and to the progress that we've already attained, such as it is, in sanctification. In other words, he's saying hold fast to the truth and do not slink back. Do not grow weary. Do not give up in this. You think of Hebrews saying we've not yet resisted in our battle against sin. We've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Continue on. It is true this life can be difficult. Days can be long. Progress, moreover, can be painfully slow. But see again the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and of becoming like him and pressing on. That sin that is besetting, continue to battle. Trust that God's plan for you is to bring you through, is to sanctify you, to form you into the image of Christ. There is hope for that battle. For the person saved by God's grace, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing is more significant than living one's life unto the Lord. That's the truth. Pursuing Christ's likeness, being concerned about that which concerns Christ, the glory of Christ, there's nothing more important and significant than that. Now, of course, we don't always feel that way. We don't always live up to that. We are not yet perfect after all, but that is the truth. And so let us receive this instruction and and work at renewing our minds in this, to think this way, to lead ourselves by reminders of what is ultimate in this life and of where this is all headed. Let us put off feeling sorry for ourselves if we're tempted with that. We know where this is going. We have a great hope. Again, the only reason any of us will stand before the judgment is because we've received God's gracious gift of salvation. Because we are hidden in Christ Jesus and his righteousness is ours, received as a gift of God's grace by believing, by faith. Your efforts in all of this matter, your efforts in pressing on, in sanctification... It does not improve upon what Christ has done. And this is good news. 
And again, for all who are hoping in Christ Jesus, our end is eternal life. Eternal life in the new heavens and new earth. Perfection, where righteousness will dwell, where nothing unclean and unholy will ever enter. To be with our Lord, to be with his redeemed saints from all ages. The pathway takes us through trials, through tribulations, as we experience the power of Christ's resurrection, as he's growing us slowly but surely. And all of this process leads us to a greater knowledge of our Savior. So see again the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord, all the more, and press on toward that final day. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you again and we confess that we fall short We confess that we fall short of your glory, that we so often lose sight of of what is ultimate, that that the pursuit of Christ's likeness and your glory often is, is not at the forefront of our minds. Father, we are incredibly weak. And so we pray for your continued grace and mercy. God, I pray that we would take comfort in what you promised to do for all in Christ Jesus to finish the work that you have begun. Father, I pray that every person here would would first recognize their, their complete and utter dependence and need for forgiveness and grace through Christ Jesus. And that we would all then, as those purchased by Christ, press on towards perfection because Christ Jesus has made us his own. I pray that you'd make this a joyful pursuit. I pray that you would make this a, a pursuit that we can do with great contentedness. Father, that as we fail and sin, that we would remember Christ and, and, and get up and keep going and keep pressing on, forgetting what lies behind. And even as we have great days and good moments, likewise, that we would not become arrogant or, or, or confident, but that we would continue to, to be watchful over our souls. Father, I pray together as a church we would, we would grow individually and also together into maturity in these things. Father, I pray that you'd forgive us for not delighting in the truth of your word at times. Renew a rejoicing in your word. Father, for all who are heavy and bearing great burdens, for those who are struggling with their own sins and struggling to overcome their battles, Father, I pray for great mercy and for help. And I pray that you'd encourage them with the truth of where this is going and where you are going to take them. That when we feel low and weak, We would remember your word that continually shows us your faithfulness. Father, not only do you just say that you are faithful, but you've shown how you keep your covenant promises to your people. 
And so we can hold fast to your promises of eternal life and resurrection of the dead because you do keep your word. And that nothing can snatch us from Christ's hand. And nothing can separate us from your love that is in Christ Jesus. Father, strengthen us. Settle our souls in these truths. Father, I pray that you would just, as we go from this place, that we would go with gladness of heart, rejoicing in Christ, rejoicing in you. I pray that you would encourage our witness to others, that we would speak of Christ to our neighbors, to our friends, to co-workers, wherever we might have opportunity. Father, that many others would enter into the joy of Christ that they would see their bankruptcy and, and repent and place their faith in Christ, that you would grow your church all over the world. Father, we think of your church everywhere across this world. We know that your people are suffering for various reasons all throughout the world. We pray that these truths we've looked at today would comfort your people the world over in every tribe, nation, and tongue. Father, we just pray that you would encourage us, lift us up, and help us. We pray that you would do good things in our midst, in our own hearts, for your own namesake and for the good and joy of your people as well. We pray all these things together in the name of Jesus. Amen.